you stand with me, friends, as we read the Lord's Word this morning? I'm reading, um, beginning in uh, Colossians 1.24 and ending in verse 7 of chapter 2. Again, for the purpose of context, if you would give ear now to the Lord's Word. The Apostle writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Would you be seated, please? Again, this is the Lord's word. And if you'll bow with me, friends, let's ask the Lord for his help. Again, O Lord, we thank you for this day, and I thank you for your word. Thank you for this congregation. Now, Lord, we are here uh, waiting to hear from you. We pray that you'd bless this servant, make my words faithful to your text. Help me, Lord, not to preach uh, opinions. Help me to cut this straight and faithfully feed your flock, uh, that they would, too, be encouraged and built up, that your your church, rather, would be strengthened in this world. And we pray, Father, that you would protect us from the evil one, I pray that you would help the children listen and help us all, Lord, with uh, the sharp minds to be able to hear now your word. We pray that you would cause the kingdom of Satan great injury. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do this as we sit now and wait upon you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Often we fight in the church. And it leads to people leaving. We take our things, and like children running home from the sandbox, we, we go home because we didn't get the thing that we wanted. We should fight in the church. I've always wanted to say that to the church. We should fight in the church, and more properly, we should struggle in the church. We should not struggle and fight to get our ways, but instead to see one another grow and stay put in Christ. We are called to engage in a struggle. And we have mentioned this before, speaking of that phrase, rugged covenantalism. Um, 
My apologies when I repeat myself, friends. My head is like a bowl of noodles sometimes, and I, I can't tell if I held this noodle out or that one sometimes. But you know, when you hear of the catastrophes that hit us in this land, without, without exception, people say, oh, you know, Wyomians or Floridians or, or those people, in it. they're just rugged individuals. They always rise to the occasion. We celebrate this rugged individualism. I don't see that in scripture. Rather, what I do see in scripture is this concept of rugged covenantalism, much like a marriage. We, we watch, we sometimes watch these awfully sappy shows at home and we saw one that uh, I couldn't, I, I could feel the tears coming on the moment I started. It's a man whose wife had Alzheimer's and he was slowly losing her. And yet he decided to skip Thanksgiving dinner in order to sit with his wife who refused to acknowledge his he was alive. Just about tore me up watching that. Um, that's rugged covenantalism. When your spouse won't even recognize you and treat you terribly, and yet you say, but I promised that I was going to be there. That's rugged covenantalism. It's what we do when we join a church and we say, I'm joining this these people and they're joining me and I'm going to stay put when it gets difficult we see a wonderful example of this rugged covenantalism uh, in the life of the apostle Paul on behalf of the church of course imitating what we see before us in the Lord's Supper today of our Savior who came and gave his life as an atonement for our sin he suffered in agony for us I was reminded uh, and in Luke 22:44, Luke writes, being in agony, he was praying fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He suffered in agony. Jesus Christ suffered in agony. The one who deserved no agony but deserves eternal glory entered into the human uh, experience, entered into human flesh, took upon himself human flesh, right? And he suffers such excruciating pain, such excruciating humiliation. And for who? For a people whom he came to who would not recognize him, who did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. He did it for the sinner. He did it for us. Paul would say of himself, again, to give you a bit of his mindset, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now here, as we, we read these verses in verses 1 uh, through 5, here he has expressed his struggle on behalf of the church, the church of whom he has... Uh, met very few, if any, people. Who does this? This is nuts, isn't it? By an American standard, this is nuts. Why? Why care? Why make these people an issue? Why take upon himself the burden of these churches and of these Christians of the Lycus Valley? Why do these things? Have you ever thought, well, um, this person, they're going down this path, well, they're they're, uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're a member of the church, or they were a member of the church, now they're visiting the Swami. Uh, who am I to judge? Who am I to say anything? Have you ever thought that maybe, friends, instead of looking tolerant, it's just hateful? 
that attitude? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever come under conviction? I'm telling you, as I continue to go through this text, I've come under greater and greater conviction and think, what is wrong with you, Pastor Strong? Can you even call yourself a pastor? You care more about keeping peace with people than about their souls and their eternal destinies. What is wrong with you? You can't say that of the Apostle Paul, and I pray that you can't say that of me uh, for long or forever, that the Lord is reforming me. And don't think for a second that, that I stand up here and preach these messages and, I, and I'm not the first one to get hit. I'm hit, and I was hit by this. Who does things like this? Why struggle for anyone? Why struggle for any who are here besides, uh, beside you? Um, life is so much easier, isn't it, when we're just looking after ourselves and minding our own business? Isn't that the case? I am challenging you, and I'm being challenged. Paul has just finished informing these Christians what right and what authority he had to address them and why they should be listening to him. In chapter 1, he wrote that he did his share on behalf of the Lord's body in filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is, he suffered for the sake of Christ. He suffered as a Christian. It's not that the sacrifice of Christ was insufficient. It's that the blows that are intended for Jesus Christ, though he is in heaven because they can't see Jesus Christ, they see his people and they attack them. Paul suffered. His point, I suffer. What right do I have to speak to you? Please. It's like a mother whose child says, what right do you have to say these things? And she lifts her shirt to show her stomach, and she says, these stretch marks, sweetheart, that's what gives me the right to address you. I bear in my body. I bear in my soul these marks of the Lord Jesus. Do I have a right to address you? Of course I have a right to address you. Paul had the right to address them. He was made a minister, he says, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed upon him by God for their benefit. He also preached to them this mystery, which Epaphras also preached, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he proclaimed Jesus Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It was for this purpose that Paul labored that he worked so hard, that he strove by the Lord's power, which so mightily, he says, worked within him. As an apostle and as a minister, this apostle Paul poured himself out that the church might grow and the church might mature. Boy, this is what ministry should look like. I missed that class in seminary. This This is a philosophy of ministry that is right here that we draw from this page. In case you don't know, there are a couple of ministers sitting out here in the congregation, and I'm sure that they feel the conviction when we talk about these things. Who doesn't want to be received in the pulpit and, oh, your words are golden, chrysostom. You know, we want to say these things. And then you say these things and people say, I'm going, I don't like what you bring to me. You know, it's okay. It's okay. You plant the seed, and you let the Lord hammer them. He poured himself out in order for the church to grow and to mature, and this is why he labored as he did, and this, my friends, is that to which we are called as well. 
to fight in the church to fight for a rugged covenantalism. We're not called to vocational ministry per se, but to the care and labor uh, that one another requires, as I believe it is clearly implied by this text before us. Again, I ask the question, why did he struggle for these people whom he had never met? And why ought we imitate and enter into the struggle? And it is a struggle. You remember we went over some months back Proverbs 14.4, where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Much good comes from having oxen, but boy, are they a lot of work. They are messy. And my friends, ministry is messy. People and their situations are messy. And no prophet has ever come without agony. No prophet has ever come to anyone without agony. Parents, Look at the agony you pour into your children. And what is the goal? To see them walking straight before the Lord, honoring the Lord as citizens when they're well beyond uh, your roof line. Think of marriage. How many people start off marriage and go, what happened? You switched my bride. <laughs> like, like Jacob, you duped me. Who's this woman? You feel like that. You get married and you go, what, what, what became of that sweet girl that I married? Or where was that manly man who's acting like he still wants a mommy? And you grow and you mature through much agony. You find, uh, you find a beautiful marriage is honed and shaped or work of those of you who have businesses. You didn't start out being successful. You just agonized until something was formed. Relationships of any value, friends, always take agonization. They take work. They take contesting. So understand, as, as Paul begins this, the chapter 2, verse 1, understand that biblical ministry is a difficult thing. Ministry is difficult. Biblical ministry is extremely difficult. And and again, we're not just talking, I'm not just talking to Jerry or to Brian or to myself. I'm speaking to all of us because we would all, we stand up here and we talk about rugged covenant and we take vows of membership and then we say, yeah, but I didn't anticipate it being difficult. Well, what did you think it was going to be? You're joining a body of sinners. Do you think you were in heaven? Of course not. So biblical ministry is difficult, and it's difficult for one of us, for all of us. It entails agony. This is not to say that there isn't tremendous reward or joy. It's just the reality of the matter. Again, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. He's now presenting to them a proof of what he was just saying in chapter 1. He has a great struggle for them. That is, for the believers in Colossae and Laodicea, and it is believed also in the city of Heropolis. These are towns in the Lycus Valley who have, no doubt, uh, been affected by the false teaching of the false teachers that is abounding. One commentator said this, again, regarding the, the, the philosophy, the teaching, 
that was spreading, and we'll get into this more in the weeks to come. They say, it is a Greek-influenced form of Jewish philosophy that viewed Christians as still vulnerable to spiritual forces that needed to be appeased through veneration, some sort of asceticism of food and drink, honoring certain days prescribed in Old Testament ceremonial law. Again, they are saying, Jesus Christ is not enough. Jesus Christ is, is not enough to save you. He's not enough to cause you to be to be sound and holy and to grow in grace. We've got to add things to this thing. So Paul is engaged in this struggle for them. The word is the same in the Greek. It's the word from which we derive our word agony. And it's a contest. Uh, You think of athletes and runners and charioteers. Here it's used in the sense of an intense solicitude or an intense anxiety. Remember, Paul's in prison. And he says he agonizes over them. How? How could a guy so many hundreds of miles away be agonizing for a church people he never met? How could he be exercised so arduously? Again, commentators say it's probably a reference to Paul's prayers and inner conflict and the concerns that he felt for these people. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight that he would experience the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. Any parents ever sit up late at night wondering when is my child going to come home? What are you going to do? What are they going to do about this sickness, this disease? And you lay there in bed. You're not physically, except for your tossing and turning, you're not, but you mentally, emotionally, you're in this, this pit of deep, I'm wrestling so hard, Lord. The struggle Again, they are in, he's in prison. They are being preyed upon by false teachers, the whole area, who are trying to lead them from Christ alone to things in addition to or beside Christ. He endures hardship for them, you see, sleeplessness, wrestling with anxiety. He's in prayer for them. He's writing letters. He's explaining. He laboriously explains why you should be listening to me. And above all, he risks rejection. Did any of us never you ever feel the risk, the fear of being rejected? Oh, if I say this thing about Jesus Christ, if I take this stand, I might run people off. Jesus did it too, didn't he? These things are too hard. We're leaving. And remember, they do. Because he spoke the truth to them. If they fall prey, if these Christians in the Lycus Valley fall prey to the false teaching, they will never see maturity they will not finish the race they will die in their sinful pride sounds like a good reason to be in agony doesn't it when you know that the eternal souls of your brothers or sisters are in jeopardy would you ever consider suffering agony to preserve one another from going to hell That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul's engaged in. That's the turmoil that he is in. And it goes well beyond his flesh. It goes well beyond, do they like me or not? If that were a question going through the apostles' minds, I'm sure he summarily said, doesn't matter if they like me or not. Is anyone going to warn them that they're in danger of of losing their life for all eternity? This is what it means, my friends, to minister to someone else, 
to fight for them, and it is hard. Here the apostle lets them know that he is engaged in a great struggle for them, his overarching concern being that every man be presented complete, that is mature in Christ, to see them finish the race, to enter into glory. That's the goal. That's what I want to see. This is why I'm in agony over you at this time. But even more specifically, that they would be strengthened in heart and have a complete understanding of Christ. Verses 2 and 3, listen again. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, remember, he's writing while under house arrest. He has a tremendous struggle on behalf of those in the Lycus Valley. How can they be helped when I am so far away? Clearly, they are helped through his praying, through the writing of the letter. He writes that he struggles so that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Now, when we think of their hearts needing to be encouraged, when we use the word encouraged, we typically think of those who are discouraged, who have suffered some emotional blow or faint-hearted. Uh, and, and so when somebody is down, we endeavor to pick them up. I'm feeling bad about my image. Well, I think you're just stunning. I think you're just beautiful. That is a killer haircut. And we say something to try, oh, thanks, you know, and I've made them feel better about themselves now. That's the way we typically think of encouragement. That is not the way we ought to look at encouragement here in this passage, I'm convinced. Again, he is struggling so that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. The kind of encouragement he is talking about here, he is speaking about uh, an encouragement that should be understood as being strengthened or exhorted. It is to build up, to strengthen, not so much to lift up emotionally. I want you to consider this, that the church in, in the Lycus Valley is a fairly young church. They are young in the faith. Much is new. Discernment has not been built up, right? Because discernment comes as we are exposed to the word of God. As we are in it more and more, we begin to see things as being good or being evil. Some of you older people who have walked with the Lord a very long time, you have no problem saying, that smells bad, that is bad, you need to run away from that. And by the way, that's your job to tell us that. That's the most knuckleheaded idea I have ever heard. Don't go there, don't do that. Right? You, 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 lose, you lose your physical strength. But friends, if the Lord has blessed you with a mind... And years in the Lord, please address and speak up to the younger brothers and sisters. Don't be the typical American who doesn't talk about politics or religion. Talk about politics and religion, please. Speak about the things of the Lord. Caution the younger people. They need the wisdom the Lord has given you. These people are young in the faith. Discernment has not been built up. Everyone and everything sounds sort of right. These persuasive arguments that they give, right? How many people go away to college and then they hear someone like Karl Marx being quoted who, who says, well, religion is the opiate of the masses. And everyone goes, oh, wow, that's really deep. That sounds 
Like, right. Dude. And, and they, they buy into this stuff, these persuasive arguments, until some parent, some church member comes along and says to them, well, that's the biggest crock of cockamamie I've ever heard. That was difficult to say. Um, <laughs> someone needs to set them straight, and you speak the truth. You call it for what it is. That's lousy theology. That's lousy philosophy. Why would you believe that? Well, I don't know. Like a girl on the plane. I laughed when she said we came from monkeys. I laughed. I didn't mean to laugh. I just laughed. And she goes, why'd you laugh? I said, there's no evidence for it. And she goes, yeah, I know. I said, why do you believe it? Because what's my professor told me? We need to speak. These people didn't have this discernment. They weren't there yet. And furthermore, the heart of man is the fulcrum one commentator says the fulcrum of feeling and faith as well as the, the, the mainspring of words and actions. It is the core and center of man's being, man's inmost self, as the Proverbs state, out of it are the issues of life. Jesus said in Matthew 15, from the heart flow evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. And with the heart, said Paul in Romans 10, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness so understand that what fills the heart overflows into life if my heart rests in christ will you not see it in my life the answer is yes you will if however my heart and my confidence is in something other than christ will you not see that too you will what is the heart of the american church filled with and what is it that the church in the United States is known for? What are we filling the hearts of the congregations with? Humanistic philosophies, or are we filling it with the truth of Christ? Are we filling it with good things? Are we filling it with bad things? A tree is known by its fruit. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's coming out? What's the fruit of the American church? He wants to see these Christians, these young Christians, he wants to see that their hearts are strengthened, strengthened in and with the right kinds of things and not with the philosophies of this world, which he will say later in this chapter uh, that are, that are uh, taken up by empty deception, deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. How will their hearts be strengthened? And this is where you come to play, come into play, rather, having been knit together in love. Thus, we see here very plainly the importance of the body of Christ and why we say in our bulletin, and we encourage this all the time, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are one body in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our head. Paul had already written, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. Having been, he says, that is, in Christ we have been knitted or joined together in an affection for one another. Listen to 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, 
that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Those who are born of God love one another. And we're not saying that everyone is the same ease of loving, but that the church of Christ is to be known for its love and its sacrifice and its care for others, especially in the church. In other words, friends, the body ministers to the body. The body ministers to the body. Paul knows this. Some are strong in the body and some are weak. Some are new. Some are old to the faith. Hearts need to be strengthened. As I was preparing this, an image from um, from the wild came to my mind. And it is things I have heard, and I've, I actually looked on YouTube to see, is this a thing or is this something somebody made up? It's actually a thing. If you consider elk or buffalo, how do the wolves attack? They attack the weak and the isolated. They become the prey of the wolf, the weak or the isolated. So consider this in light of, of what Paul is saying here. Imagine a young and isolated Christian who is not grounded in theology, doesn't have older brothers or sisters in the Lord saying to them, no, don't go there, don't do that. You don't need those things. Don't listen to those monkeys. You consider them and what happens to them. Somebody comes to them and gives them the latest philosophy book. Not pointing them to Christ, but rather, look at men. Look at men can do. Charles Templeton spoke of that very thing. Billy Graham in his biography spoke of that very thing about his friend Charles Templeton who went away to one of the Ivy League seminaries and decided at that point that really you can't trust the scriptures after all. And the man walked away from Jesus Christ after having been a very, from what I understand, a very faithful evangelist for a period of time. What were those false teachers peddling that a man of God who preached so faithfully the gospel would say, yeah, I don't believe the Bible anymore. Jesus isn't enough. You see, it can happen, and it does happen, and it happens every day. The isolated and the weak become prey. But you see, what happens is the body, the body gathers and they fellowship and they speak and they encourage or strengthen, they instruct, they correct, they minister. You see to the needs of one another. When I say, please take time to fellowship with one another, I'm not really thinking that, hey, you should talk about uh, hunting or you should talk about your car or you should talk about the latest news I'm really hoping that you'll start saying hey how's it going I've had a rough week really why is that oh my children or my wife or my husband or my 
whatever it might be, you start bearing the burden and you start talking and then you start bringing the means of grace. You bring the gospel to bear. Yeah, it's hard dying to yourself, isn't it, when you have to submit to your husband? Oh, man, is it rough when you're supposed to die to yourself and lead your wife and and tell her the right things and love her and die to yourself and your desires and make her a priority? That's rough. But, you know, isn't it interesting? That's what Jesus Christ did for us. And you start talking into each other's lives. And all of a sudden, you're being strengthened. You know, I, I meet routinely with people for lunch, and there are some of you whom I meet with and the pleasure and the treasure is all mine. Because when I start talking, the pastor gets pastored. And my eyes get lifted to the Lord. That's what should be happening among the body of Christ. That's what Paul is struggling for. I want to see you guys be strengthened in your hearts. Having been, how does he say it? Having been knit together in love and attaining he says to all the wealth that comes from a full full assurance of understanding Paul will say later here in, in Colossians 3 let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God What's the goal? What's the extent to which their hearts ought to be strengthened? Again, he says, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. My friends, these false teachers preyed on the untrained and the undiscerning. But the body ministers to the body, helping one another attain to all the wealth. That is a, a strange concept, a concept. The ESV, I, I like how they translate it. Or to reach all the riches of full assurance. Brother with brother, sister with sister, elders with congregations, a thorough, rich, gratifying insight into the spiritual, into spiritual matters, discerning truth and error with the goal not being any other than to come back, my friends, to Jesus Christ as the one who is preeminent, the one who is above all, the one who alone is the one who is our Redeemer. We are helping each other reach to a fuller understanding of Jesus Christ. That's our goal in the church as the body, to help each other. Here, I'm going to give you a hand up here now. Put your foot in my hands and let me lift you with what I know about Jesus Christ. And I'm going to lift and we help each other reach to that full assurance of knowledge, to a proper understanding of Jesus Christ. This is the goal. It's what we do for each other. We point each other back to Jesus Christ. Listen, uh, again, uh, if you turn to Colossians 2.19, he says, Uh, Well, I'll start in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. You see, we must hold fast to the head. Our goal is to help each other hold fast to the head. From whom, he writes, the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. That's what we're doing. We're helping each other reach 
to a full understanding of who Jesus Christ is and not buying the garbage that is being shoveled upon us in this culture and in many corners of the church. We point each other back to Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because we have philosophers and philosophies like Jordan Peterson. Smart man. Or Karl Marx. Not a good man. I wouldn't even say a, a smart man. But certainly peddling a, a very demonic doctrine that has certainly become very persuasive in our day who undermines religion or the veneration of saints. And this is where I think perhaps I've been too weak and too tolerant. We had All Saints Day this past week. So I asked somebody because we don't observe All Saints Day. We do esteem the fact that there were saints who have gone before us. And we rejoice in their godly examples of suffering and of obedience to the Lord Jesus. But that's where we draw the line. We actually like the Virgin Mary. We are grateful to the Lord for such an example of humility and be it done to me, Lord, as you have. But, but we don't pray to Mary. And interesting, right? Where do we last see Mary mentioned in the New Testament? It's in Acts chapter 1. We don't see her spoken of beyond that. We never certainly hear anyone say, pray to Mary. And so I was told by this uh, Roman Catholic girl who was just, just a lovely girl, and she was so respectful, and I just said, can you explain to me what you're doing? Because they were parading down the street holding this thing as they were, I think they were singing and things like this. They said, we're venerating the saints, she said. I said, venerating the saints, what does it mean to venerate? Well, it's not worship. I said, okay, um, so what is it? And she said, well, we, we, we recognize that they've died and they've gone before. They're in the glory of God now. They're in heaven. And so we figure we could direct prayers to them, and then they, in turn, can lift our prayers to God. Yes. And so my question is, naturally, well, then why did Jesus come? And why did he have to die? And what does it mean that he is a high priest and that he's made the way into the Holy of Holies? Right? And yet, man, I'm telling you, these 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 students across the street they're smart they took a field trip one of them a class they took a class field trip up to Thermopolis to swim in the hot springs and they could only speak in Latin not pig Latin 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 a dead language how do you speak in Latin I don't even know what it sounds like semper ubi sub ubi Right? We, we say these things and you go, how are they doing this? They're smart. And they're reading the classics. And then they come up with things. Like, well, we, we wear this icon around our neck because it keeps us safe. Or if you want to sell your house, put an icon of Joseph. And if you want to sell it fast, bury it upside down. And I go, this is nuts. And I understand. And you should understand why the reformers were saying according to the scriptures alone because there's no end of persuasive arguments in this world and they sort of sound right except they're not they're not because they encourage people to trust things besides Jesus Christ and I understand 
I don't mean to sound harsh. I don't, this isn't my truth. This is the Lord's truth on the matter. And you see how the Apostle Paul is so concerned because there were people in the area very, very, very persuasive in the things they were saying. And they sounded so good, except they weaned the heart off of Christ and they start getting people to trust other things. And when that happens, the little elk calf is alone and the wolves devour. And the man or the woman suffers eternally in hell because their hearts were led away from Jesus Christ. You understand why he's in agony? You understand how important the body of Christ is? Why? Why? Um, why do we encourage and why do we help each other seek this? He says to them, see that no one takes you captive. Why Christ? Because, friends, he is God's mystery, is revealed to the sinner, not discovered by intellect. Why Christ? Because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, this, summarizing this, I understand we're almost out of time. This commentator said this, and I loved what he wrote. It's, it's succinct and beautiful. He says, the Colossians need not, must not look for any source of happiness or of holiness outside of Christ. Do false teachers boast about their wisdom and their knowledge or about that of the angels? Neither man nor angels nor any other creature has anything at all to offer which cannot be found in an incomparably superior essence and an infinite degree in Christ. What does the world offer? Does it compare to Jesus Christ? Is it enough to, to lead you to holiness? Let's say it leads you to a more disciplined life and your life is peaceful. Great, I'm happy for you, but you're going to die and still go to hell. Only Jesus Christ can save. Only his blood can save and his blood is enough. His righteousness is enough. It's where we find peace. It's where we find wholeness. It's where this world can make sense. It's where we find purpose. It's not in the gurus and the swamis of the age. It's not in ancient church fathers or the mystic new agers or the progressive left. I don't go to them to help me find inner peace and purpose, nor should you, nor should any one of you. And every one of us should be on guard for our brother or sister sitting next to us not to allow that to happen. And when it comes up, you say, hold on. <laughs> we need to talk. I need to challenge this idea in the most uplifting, positive way I can. I've got to challenge you on this supposition. It's a dangerous place to be. That's where I feel tremendous conviction. I don't look to these others to secure my future. I go to Christ and to Christ alone. And he says, again, answering this question, why does he struggle on their behalf? Why does he write as he does? Why does he pray as he does? Why does he go through the anxiety he goes through each night in his prison cell so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments? I say this, verse 4 and 5, I say this so that no one will delude you with with persuasive argument for even though I am absent in body nevertheless I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ here Paul is not with them he has heard a good report regarding them 
and of their Christian lives, of their stability, and it causes him to rejoice. He is with them in spirit. He loves them. He is rooting for them. He has a tremendous affection and heart for them. What love we see in the Apostle Paul for these people. He doesn't want what is a good beginning in the Lord to end up as tragedy. That's it. And that is what it is when a child of God who walks away from Jesus Christ no longer rests in him, but is deluded by the persuasive arguments that sound good but lead us away from the green pastures, the still waters, and the path of true righteousness when they lead us away from the Lord himself. That is truly a tragedy. Paul fights for them. Paul fights for them because Jesus fought for Paul and Jesus Christ fights for us and has fought and has won. Look in front of you. Look at this table. Jesus is the one who fought for his people. He is the one who gave his life for us. And my friends, in him is all we need. That's it. That's what makes Protestant Christianity, the Reformed doctrines, again, we didn't invent them. Just get into the Bible and read it for yourself. My grandfather, who died at 95, was a pastor, um, a Presbyterian pastor, and I had said to him, Grandpa, why, why don't people understand these reformed doctrines he goes I don't know I guess maybe they're not reading their Bibles the doctrines of the Reformation are not man-centered they're God-centered and they express from Genesis to Revelation how God has accomplished a great redemption for his people and we err by by trying to sound like brainiacs and trying to be intellectually persuasive to the world when we just don't stand on the word of God it speaks for itself. It's plain. Read it and see the great fight that Christ accomplished for us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word and thank you again for your kindness to us and pray that your blessing will be upon now this Lord's Supper as we are reminded how one came and fought for us and won. We thank you, Jesus, for the pain and the agony you underwent on our behalf and we thank you for those who have gone before like the apostle who likewise endured great agony in order to protect and preserve uh, your people and I pray Lord now for ourselves that we would learn this same mind and that we would have the same attitude towards one another we thank you again for this and pray now that you would have your way with us and I ask this in Jesus name Amen <clears throat>